Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I'll begin reading at the first verse of chapter 1 to make sure that we've got the, the context as we proceed through the rest of the verses there. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many ways and in many portions, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom." You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Fathers, we come to your word. We ask that you would deepen our understanding increase our understanding of the glory of Jesus Christ, of the magnitude of who he is. You have revealed him in the world and through your word. And we know him, Lord, because we can come to the written word to read of the living word. And so if we face challenges this morning because of the statements that are made would you grant us repentance to bow at the feet of jesus not simply to commit ourselves but to surrender ourselves we thank you in advance for the work that you do in building us and nourishing us on your good word and in jesus name we pray amen why is it so important that Jesus be better than the angels. That's really the, the, the topic of, of verse 5 all the way through verse 14. And in fact, when we get into chapter 2, uh, we're going to see three more statements about angels that clearly show that Jesus is better than the angels, superior to the angels. That, that 
is on the one hand kind of a given. Of course, he's superior to the angels. Of course, he's better than the angels. But Jesus is better than everything. Uh, Other than the Father and the Holy Spirit with whom he is co-equal, he's better than everything. So it would be equally true to say that he is much better than the plants. He's much better than the animals. He's much better than the oceans or the jungles. He's much better than us. He's much better than anything else. Why focus on angels? And the reason is because preoccupation with angels was part of the, the Jewish mysticism that existed in the time of Christ in the first century and in the, the centuries leading up to this. We see the, the superstition about angels reflected in the story of the man healed at the pool of Bethesda. You remember the story, Jesus goes there, there are people gathered around the, the pools. The pool of Bethesda was a, a fairly large, actually two pools, one leading into the other, fed by a natural spring on the north side of the Temple Mount. And a superstition had, had grown up that periodically an angel would come down and stir up the water and whoever managed to get into the water first would be healed because the the pool was fed by a natural spring there were occasionally burblings and bubblings as water shifted well when jesus said to this man do you want to get well the man said i've got no one to put me into the water when it moves he believed this superstition that was there It wasn't true. No angel stirred up the water. No one was ever healed miraculously at that pool for the simple reason that that it's a superstition and superstition replaces the grace of God with random chance. It replaces the sovereignty of God with, with just sheer dumb luck. And we don't serve a God who calls us to hope in the random Superstition kept those poor people desperately hoping, not in God, but in an angel and in some stirring of the water. Jewish tradition had come to teach that because God is spirit, Jesus says that in John 4, because Moses could not see the glory of God, that, that we see that in Exodus 33, Moses says, show me your glory. God says, you can't see my face Because no one can see me and live, God's glory is God's face, is God. Jewish mystics decided that the law did not come directly from God, Yahweh, to Moses. They decided that God gave it to angels. And angels brought it to Moses. And angels took on an exalted position. When Stephen is preaching in Acts chapter 7, right before he's put to death, in fact, it's the last statement that he makes he says to his opponents, you received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not obey it. And the next verse says they were so outraged by this that they took up stones and stoned him to death. The superstition existed within Jewish mysticism that there are angels out there and we have to interact with them and we get to interact with them and it becomes a, a significant focus of what they did. And that superstition made its way into the church. And it made its way into the church through, through two ways. They're simple ways. You'll understand them as soon as I say this. The first is that when somebody who holds that superstition gets born again, when they're saved and when they're brought into the church, you can't deal with every issue and every error at one time. And so people come in with their assumptions. 
and their presuppositions about the way the world is. Uh, I was born again. Tomorrow is my 40th spiritual birthday, August 13th, 1978. I was three months old in the Lord before I realized Jesus was God. And it was because I was reading the scripture, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, word was God. And I thought, now wait a second. In the beginning was the word. I know that's Jesus. And the word was with God. Yeah. And the word was God. Well, that means Jesus is God. I was so stunned by this, I went around to all of my Christian friends in high school. And I said, did you know? That Jesus is God? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. Yeah. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Well, you can't learn everything at one time. And so the superstition about angels just kind of came in as part of the baggage of adult believers. It was also brought in by false teachers. And so Colossians chapter 1 says, Paul says there, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Now notice what he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. As, As people come in, false teachers come in and they proclaim these things and people go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, they're being defrauded in that moment. They're losing something in that very moment. They may not lose it permanently and they may not lose uh, eternity in terms of eternal life, but they're being defrauded because their eyes are being turned away from Jesus onto these other things, including the worship of angels. The fascination with angels was part of their, their worship, part of the Jewish mysticism. In our time, fascination with angels seems to be far more uh, known within New Age teachings and occult teachings. Um, all kinds of little black magic shops and wizard shops and all those things frequently have angels and angel figurines and things like that. And and that just kind of makes sense for a couple reasons. One is uh, there's no such thing as an atheist. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But God is placed within his creation and his place within every human being sufficient knowledge to know that he exists, that he is divine, that he is eternal, and that he has all power. Those who say, I don't believe in God, are, are saying, I won't believe in God. He's given them enough reason to do that. So when you have unbelievers who say, I reject the idea of the biblical God, but I can't reject the idea of the biblical God, and there's the spirit being that I want to interact with, But that spirit being is a benevolent spirit being. What shall we call it? We're going to call it an angel. They're almost captive to biblical terminology. They're certainly not going to openly call them demons. So before we dive in, let me just say this. No one is saved because their beliefs about angels are right. As you share the gospel with somebody, it is not necessary to take them through a detailed angelology class so that their beliefs about angels are exactly right. But people do go to hell because their beliefs about angels are wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the archangel Michael became Jesus, the man, and upon his death became the archangel Michael again. 
That's a belief about angels that damns people to hell. And so we have to pay attention to what Scripture says. Whenever it speaks, it speaks with absolute authority. If we are willing to ignore what the Bible says on minor issues, to hold on to our our pet ideas and pet theories, one day we might find ourselves ignoring what the Bible says about major issues. The person of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of sin and salvation, the work of the cross. So how is Jesus better than the angels? The writer deals with this in these verses. And I'm going to try and group this. We'll jump around a little bit, but for the sake of putting it into some order, I'm trying to group it. The first thing is that Jesus is an infinitely better person than the angels, and we see that because he has a better name. In the biblical world, a better name meant a better person. Your name was who you were on the inside. It wasn't just what you did for a living. It wasn't just what you thought about yourself. It was your actual identity. And so Jesus has become as much better than the angels, verse 4, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What do we know about Jesus' name? Well, we know a lot about Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name. We baptize in Jesus' name. Miracles were performed in Jesus' name. The apostles taught in Jesus' name. Salvation is through Jesus' name. In fact, the Bible says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Christ. Jesus' name is the focus of Christians. It's the basis of church discipline. It's by Jesus' name that sinners are justified. It's by Jesus' name that we give thanksgiving and that we do all things. Jesus' name is to be glorified in the church. It's the basis of life. Sins are forgiven by Jesus' name. Faith must be in Jesus' name. And what's interesting is you won't find any of these statements, not one of them made about any angels at all, ever. And so Jesus is a better personage, a higher personage. Angels are mentioned less than 300 times between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. Jesus is mentioned almost 8,000 times, either directly or referenced in the New Testament alone. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references in the Old Testament that are prophetic and speaking about the angel of the Lord and about the Son of God. So Jesus is better because he's a better person. Jesus is better because he is the only son of God. Verse 5, we have a rhetorical question. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. The answer to that rhetorical question, both questions actually, is none. God never said to any angel, you are my son. He never said to any, any angel, I will be a father to him. Now, in the, in the book of Job and other places in the Old Testament, angels are called sons of God. But there's a plural there, sons. There's no such thing as an angel who is the son of God. And they're called sons of God within the context of being created beings. We see the same thing with the idea of human beings being children of God. The, the dominant teaching of Scripture is that God's children are his people, those who have believed in him, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul says on 
Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 as he is speaking. In general terms, we are all children of God because we are his creation made in his image. We have to be born again as his children. And so no, no angel is ever called the Son of God. Now Jesus, in claiming to be the Son of God, was claiming equality with God. The Jewish leaders knew this. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This is John chapter 5. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When people say Jesus never claimed to be God, that's a lie. He did claim to be God, and he did it so clearly that his enemies were willing to put him to death. His response to this is, is not to correct their thinking, not to say, oh, wait, 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 you misunderstood, but to let them sit in their judgment. So God never says to an angel, you are my son, today I have begotten you, but Jesus is the only begotten son. And third, Jesus is better than the angels because he's God. And, and I've got to subdivide this a little bit I don't outline really well. You know that. You've got to kind of track with me, so I've done the best that I can here. Jesus is superior because he's God. Let's work through these verses. It says in verses 6 and 7, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. But of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Jesus receives worship. He is to be worshipped by the angels. Angels are never to be worshipped. The Apostle John tried twice in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and chapter 22. The enormity of what he's seeing and what he's hearing overwhelms John to the point where he falls down in front of this angel who is speaking to him. And the angel doesn't say, yeah, good for you. You know that I'm better. The angel says, no, you stop right now. Very strong language. I am a fellow servant. Do not worship me. Jesus' glory is God's glory. So the angels who attend Jesus' birth and who proclaim it are there to worship God. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. As the Son of God is born, God the Father sends angels to acknowledge this moment and to worship God in his fullness. But angels are never to be worshipped. They are not God. They are not gods. They are created beings. To us, they're incredible. They're glorious. They're powerful. Most of the times when you see an angel appear in Scripture in, in their kind of undisguised glory, the response isn't, oh, cool. The response is terror. And often with angels, the first thing that they say is, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But to God, angels are just created beings, made according to his pleasure, made according to his purpose, made to achieve his goals. From our point of view, we we could look at, at the angels in their glory, the angels in heaven, the descriptions that we see, and say there's God way up there, and then there's there's angels. But God looking down says there's bacteria and there's angels. 
because they're just created beings. Jesus certainly never worshipped angels, and John was rebuked for doing so. Jesus' glory is the glory of God. Second, Jesus' authority is God's authority. Looking at verses 8 and 9, But of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He has a throne. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. A scepter is a, a staff that is a, an emblem of authority and rule. And he says in verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Verse 9, that you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness is a reference to the justice of God and the purity of God and the holiness of God and ultimately, I think, to the judgment of God. That he judges what is righteous and he judges what is lawless. And in verse 13, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I know I'm bouncing you around, but if you look at verse 3, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high on a throne. He is seated on the throne of God. No human being is ever seated at the throne of God. No angel is ever seated on the throne of God. Some theologians teach a heresy called Marcionism. It's an ancient heresy. Marcion was a heretic who lived in the late uh, first century in the early part of the second century. And he said that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament God is cruel and vindictive and petty. And the New Testament God is patient and kind and forgiving. And he obviously ignores all of those moments in the Old Testament where the loving kindness of God, the hesed of God, uh, dominates everything and God forgives Israel over and over and over again. And God forgives Jonah when Jonah exercises open rebellion over and over again. And God even uh, spares Nineveh when they repent. When God describes himself as a husband of an adulterous wife who's remaining faithful to that adulterous wife in the, in the Old Testament. And they ignore the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me, Jesus, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus is the one sitting in judgment on the wicked and especially on the wicked who claim to be Christians. And he has no problem at all saying, you're not coming into the kingdom. You're going to hell because I never knew you. So this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a judgmental, narrow-minded, vindictive, cruel God and the God of the New Testament is this kindly, soft, old grandpa pushover is not true. It's one God. There is only one God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' authority is the authority of God. No angel could ever say that. Lastly, Jesus' nature is 
God's nature. We see some hints of that in verse 10. You, Lord, again, speaking to Jesus, you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. So Jesus is creator. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same one was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's John 1, 1 through 3. Jesus is the creator. On the other hand, angels are created beings. Verse 7, they are called winds and a flame of fire. He doesn't even call them slaves and servants and workers. He compares them to inanimate forces. Not because they are inanimate forces, but because they serve at the pleasure of God. He directs them and they obey. Jesus as creator is self-existent. Verse 11, the writer says in quoting the Old Testament, they will perish, but you, Jesus, remain and they will all become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment they will also be changed but you are the same and your years will not come to an end so not only is he creator he's eternal because he's god he never grows he never changes he never learns he never alters he never behaves differently and we see jesus as a man Jesus as a human being, born, growing, growing in favor with God and man, but in his divine nature, he's never been anything but the same. So what we face in life is all according to the purposes of God, according to his sovereignty. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is outside of his authority. The, the birth of Killian which is an awesome thing. The struggles being faced by Bob Robinson. All of that is, is according to his express will. He has permitted it. In that permission, he has not just said, I'll let you do whatever you want. He's actually ordained it so that those things must be. And because we serve a God who ordains all things and who says what must be, we know that when he says to us, I will never cast you away. No one can take you out of my hand. We know that he's not just going to try really hard. But that those are guaranteed promises. Jesus is eternal. Creation's not eternal. Creation perishes. The heavens will perish. The universe will become old. Like clothes. Like old clothes. Verse 12 speaks about his power. Like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a like a robe you'll just gather them up and roll them up and get rid of them like a garment they will also be changed the universe is one day going to be changed it'll wear out god will roll it up and replace it like you and i change our socks except i think it'll be easier for him to change the universe than it is even for us to change our socks God doesn't change. He doesn't grow. He doesn't learn. He's not waiting to see what we might do so he he knows what he might do. He already knows. 
Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus is infinitely and eminently greater than angels in every way, in, in every sense. As we think about that bringing it home, I don't know if any of us in this room have ever had a worshipful religious preoccupation with angels. There are some Christians who kind of get a little bit tweaked in that way. But it's really not something that, that at least the evangelical church faces today. But the issue isn't just angels. The, the issue is anything that becomes a preoccupation. So some are preoccupied with nature, social justice, the environment, endangered species... Uh, most people are just developed or are just focused on their own goodness and their own enjoyment of life. Can I have a good life? Confident that their good works outweigh their bad works because God's exactly like them, right? But replacing Jesus with something else is a terribly dangerous thing to do. Many of the things that we replace him with begin as good things. They begin as good things. There are rescue missions that began as gospel-oriented rescue missions, as the Norfolk Rescue Mission began as a gospel-oriented rescue mission. And because of Tom Beatty's work and Will Perrigan's work and Justin Fisher's devotion, they remain gospel-focused. But we know of other rescue missions that began as gospel-focused missions that have dropped the gospel. The gospel is no longer key to what they do. And, and maybe they simply looked at it and said, you know, be, because when people come here, they have to listen to a presentation of the gospel, there are people who won't come here for help. So if we don't present the gospel, more people will come here. And isn't that a good thing? No, it's not. It's not. Because food and clothing and shelter are available in a variety of places, but the gospel is only available through really a, a, a small range of outlets it takes believers who are slaves of christ devoted to christ committed to christ to share the gospel with people i think what happens is we can as as christians see an issue that grabs our attention in our heart and we begin investing in that thing and we invest in that thing to the point where we, be, we begin excluding Jesus himself. And we focus on that. We can even start thinking, that's what Jesus wants me to do. He wants me to turn away from him. He wants me to take the light off of him and shine it on this issue. And after we've done that for a while, we can do that. And then eventually we say, you know something? I really don't need Jesus at all to do this. One of those questions that every group, every church has to face at some point is who do you partner with to do ministry? Would you partner with Buddhists to set up a pro-life ministry? I couldn't do that. You don't have to be a Christian to be pro-life, but you can't have a pro-life ministry without Christ. Otherwise, what we're saying to the world is our, our true God is the unborn child. And whatever form the 
our, our worship to God, it takes the God that really ties us together and makes us a community is, is an unborn child or the homeless or spotted owls or whatever it happens to be. The point that somebody says, I don't actually need Jesus to do what's on my heart is the point of apostasy and damnation. And it's so subtle. Remember what the, the serpent said to Eve? Has God really said? And she said, well, let's see. It looks good to me. It's pleasing to me to do it. And if I do that thing, I'm a better person. I guess I don't need God after all. And what a terrible error that was. The Babylon Bee is a Christian satire site. Sometimes what they say is not very satirical. Sometimes it's very true. They had an item a year ago or so that said, couple follows their hearts, billions die. And that's true. Well, Jesus calls us to abandon our causes and adopt his cause. And so I urge you, I even beg you, if you have allowed something to creep in and take Jesus' place or be parallel to him and and say, I can serve this thing and serve Christ, I just give you a warning that that's a bad place to be. Quite often in serving him and devoting our lives to him, he places us in that area of passion. And we're able to serve there better than we would have been able to before. But we're sinners and we've got idle factories in our hearts and so we must always beware. Father, we thank you for the love that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his glory is your glory, that his authority is your authority, that his nature is your nature. Lord, would you test our hearts. Would you see if we are devoting ourselves to anything other than Jesus Christ first and foremost. We understand that all sorts of good things can become idols, including preaching. And Lord, I ask that the, that the day preaching takes precedence over you, you remove me. Because at At the end of all things, at the end of the age, when we come to you, we come as redeemed sinners. Not as anyone who's achieved anything on our own, just sinners who were objects of mercy and grace. And for those of us who are involved in deeply meaningful and deeply moving areas, would you set a watch over our hearts so that those areas do not become
competitors with the Lord Jesus. Grant us repentance if they have. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who were not able to be with us today and ask that you would comfort them, guide them, remind them of your love, bring them to your word. Lord, fill our hearts with the gospel because we all need a Savior every day and fill our mouths with the gospel because our world needs to hear. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.